Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome. It is such a delight to have you here today. And we're going to be not just inspiring ourselves in the next little while. We're going to be getting a whole bunch of useful information you can apply to improve your life. So listen with either a paper and pen in hand. Remember those old-fashioned things you used to use, paper and pen? Or you can make notes on your device. But either way, make notes here because let me give you some incredible incredibly useful ideas that you can apply. My guest today is Jonathan Dio. He is a Lutheran seminarian turned Buddhist academic turned financial advisor, and we'll have a lot of fun as we chart the path between those three points. He's the author of a book called Mindful Investing. The subtitle is Right Focus, Better Outcome, Greater Well-Being. He's been investing for over four decades and meditating for more than two of those. He started managing investments for clients at Wall Street firms before he began his own financial planning firm in 2001. After 20 years, he merged his firm into the national firm EP Wealth. Today, he's a partner at EP Wealth and his mindful money organization is focused on financial education and coaching for people who don't have access to traditional advice. His website is mindful.money. Jonathan, it is such a delight to have you here. Awesome. I'm excited to be here. So I'd love to begin by looking at your personal evolution. And many people did, of course, come to Buddhism from Christianity. And what was your personal path Why you were in seminary and then how you moved to Eastern religions? And we'll, we'll leave money out of it for the time being, but we'll get there after a little while. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, I was raised Lutheran. I gave the Easter sermon. I was very, very serious in the church as a kid. I attended a few services where they were ecstatic, where there's people speaking in tongues and some stuff that my parents were upset that I was actually at that particular service. But I've been a Lutheran for a long, long, long time. The one thing that I got when my grandfather died were his sermon notes. He was a minister for, he was a Lutheran minister for like 50 years. It was really important. I identified as Lutheran as a Christian and it was really important to my childhood. I actually started off in undergrad studying finance and I got terribly bored with it. I was just really bored, decided to try a little bit of literature, studied some, a lot of Shakespeare, English lit, shifted very quickly to philosophy and religious studies and loved it. And a couple of professors that were very, very important in my life, they became mentors. They said, Hey, Jonathan, you obviously like this. You should go on to grad school. So I actually originally came to the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California to study at the Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary. 
But when I got here, they said, sorry, we had a bad year last year. The scholarship that you have, we don't have the money to support that. So I was like, okay, well, I'm here. I moved my entire life from the middle of the country. My new wife, we had a van. All of our stuff was in the van. It was literally parked in the parking lot. And they said, you could probably go to one of the other seminaries or one of the other schools and see if they have budget to support your scholarship. So I went to Unitarian school. I went to the Catholic school. I went to the a bunch of different Christian schools. No one had budget. The Buddhist school had budget. Um, so- <laughs> <laughs> the accidental Buddhist. <laughs> the, the accidental Buddhist, totally. I mean, one of my favorite religions, I was sort of devout Christian. One of my favorite religions to study in undergrad was Buddhist studies, though. And the comparisons between Buddhism and Christianity were very fun for me. So I just kind of shifted a little bit to study comparative religion. But then I got into Tibetan Buddhism and I started practicing and started meeting with monks and started doing, you know, all, all the things that Tibetan Buddhists might do. And just fell in love with it. And so I kind of shifted towards being a, a purely Buddhist academic and, and, and studying the, um, the Abhidharma, which is like, I don't know if you know much about the Abhidharma, but it's very, very technical, very philosophical, very, you know, identify the thought. This is what, you know, this is where that category comes from. Super fun stuff. I love it. Very esoteric for most people. That's how I moved through to becoming, you know, a Buddhist academic. And then my wife at the time, said, Jonathan, it's my turn to go to school. So I actually dropped out of that program and I got a job at Dean Witter. They (laughs) they would hire anybody, right? So that's (laughs) that's where I started the first five years of my career with Wall Street firms. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then- Does it? Does it make sense? I don't know. (laughs) It makes sense. Absolutely. And then, you know, as Ramana Maharshi, the great Hindu sage of the early 20th century would say, now studying is one thing, experiencing it is quite another. Let's go from there to that meditative practice and experience. As you were studying this, were you practicing? Did practice begin later? What was the relationship of study, information, and practice? Yeah, I think I actually told myself, this is probably uh, after the fact, after decision rationalization, but I think I told myself after the fact that one of the reasons for dropping out instead of you know holding on and trying to finish while I worked was because I wanted to actually devote more time to practice and less time to study. And in the early years, I had, a, I had a professor named Stephen Goodman. He was fantastic. And I would express to him my struggles with actually developing the practice. And I, and I developed a practice while I was there. I had a, a Theravada monk that I practiced with. I had a Tibetan monk that I practiced with. I had a Chinese Chan monk that I, that I practiced with, Chan Zen uh, monk that I practiced with. And so I, I was introduced to lots of different types of practices. The ones that kind of stuck were more Tibetan, and now today it's sort of more secular mindfulness that I'm doing. But I could never sit for very long. I couldn't develop a long-term sitting habit. And so I would go to my professor, Stephen Goodman, and he said, Jonathan, you're going to waver until you stop wavering. Don't beat yourself up here. This is not, this isn't a white knuckle, you know, force it, make it happen kind of a thing. You do what you can do. And he gave me some sort of rudimentary practices to try to get started. And because I wanted to, I saw the benefits. I knew that there was something I wanted, to, I wanted to pursue, but it wasn't probably until I would say 20, 20 years ago that I really deepened my practice. And then I had kids. And so there was a bunch of, you know, a bunch of years there were kind of spotty, but probably for the last 15 years, it's been a pretty serious practice. And the last three years, it's been very serious. So let's go back to two previous time points. One was what you just said, I decided to deepen my practice. What catalyzed that decision? It just feels like very personal insight. I'm way too cerebral. Like I think about everything and I think too much about everything. 
And so it's interesting to think about the philosophy, but it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't support enlightenment. It doesn't support compassion. It doesn't support being a better partner, being a better person, being a better citizen. It doesn't support being a better friend. It, it, it doesn't support all the things that the benefits of actual meditation can provide. And so there was a desire for those things. Like I'm, I'm a bit of a, a spiritual seeker, always have been. Like I had a, I had a, a long dark night of the soul when I was like a, a sophomore in college. I, I remember sitting with my buddy, Bob Fallback in his living room when I visit, when I came home from college one summer. It was a very difficult year uh, for a lot of personal reasons. And I was like, God, I just, I, I don't know what the meaning of all this is. Like, what's this all mean? What's this all mean? And he was very, he was a very spiritual guy. He read very deeply in lots of different places. And he said, Jonathan, you, you kind of have to find that meaning. You, that's the, you got to find the meaning. And so many years later, that develops into, wow, very cerebral. Huh, I'm very cerebral. I think about this too much. I actually need to practice. So it's kind of an awakening to the benefits of reducing the intellect, reducing up here and increasing down here. Like it's, you need more heart, more time and sitting and more silence actually ends to just better living. Yeah, like Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra says that just, you know, if your mind keeps distracting you, just follow the breath. And I know being a, a long-term failed meditator myself that, you know, every morning I meditate for one to two hours, but still those thoughts just pop in and you just keep returning, return to the breath, return to the present moment, return to your object of meditation. And it's just one of those interesting things, Jonathan, having a mind. <laughs> yeah, having a mind. You're, you're, there you are. Yep. Nope. It's secret being, thoughts. I remember being in college and trying to meditate and having my mind act so active and one day I just screamed out, God, give me a lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> How do you escape this merciless critic and voice in your head? So, yeah, just going back and over you, and over and over again. You hear it and you go back. You hear it and you go back. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening, just remember that advice. You hear it and you go back. You hear that yammering in your head. You hear that incessant, always-on voice of awareness, and you just return yourself to the present moment. You return yourself to the breath. You return yourself to the object of meditation. You return yourself to the now. And it's not how many times your mind wanders that determines your success. It's how many times you bring it back to that centering that Jonathan and I are recommending. So all of us have trouble with meditation. It's just inherent to having this active mind. And I'm going to invite Jonathan to talk in a moment, which he does in his book about the evolutionary pathway, why our minds evolved to be this way. But just know that this is not unique to you. It's not your problem that you have mind wandering and certainly not something to criticize yourself or beat yourself up about. Everybody has mind wandering. I can promise you the Dalai Lama has mind wandering. The person you think you idolize as the world's most wonderful guru. That person has mind wandering. An Emerson University study found that seasoned Tibetan monks with an average of 40,000 hours of meditation under their belts, they have mind wandering, but they bring themselves back to that point over and over and over again. So I just want to make sure that you really get what Jonathan is saying there, that you just bring yourself back over and over and over you bring yourself back to mindfulness. You do not have to be that perfectly still mind 
to make meditation meaningful. I like how you just point at that and point at that and point at that and point at that. I have never had, like I have friends who've been meditating seriously for a long, long time, and they will describe to me these incredible meditation experiences that I could see why you would hold on to meditation to get that experience again. I've never had that. I've never had like a aha, like moment where I communed with God or anything. I've never had that. I have had moments of stillness where my mind quieted. And those are pretty amazing in and of themselves. But it's that's the point. It's not about some wow. It's not about that. It's about just being present and being okay with what is. And what is is usually that, right? It's usually just insanity. But just sit there with it. And it, it, this too shall pass. Now, you mentioned that three years ago, there was another moment, another, and I, I'm curious as to what it w was. Was it a life event, a life change, mm -hmm. a decision that led you to a yet deeper practice? What was going on for you at that time? It's, it wasn't quite three years ago. There's a dip and then a recovery. So two and a half, almost, actually, it's, it's two and a, half, a little more than two and a half years ago now. My brother died. When my brother died, my life was went into a tailspin. Like it, I tried to, you know, I'm, I'm from the middle of the country. I tried to man up and power through and, and deal with it myself. And I learned pretty quickly that that wasn't going to work. I was going to, you know, I wouldn't have made it if I tried to do it myself. I sought help. My meditation practice fell apart. I couldn't sit down. I'd sit down and just cry. What I noticed was when I, I could do walking meditation and I would go out into the park behind my house and I would just walk. I would walk and I would walk and I would walk and I would walk and and I would slowly come back around. But the decision was made probably three months after my brother died. I wanted to spend more time in meditation. I wanted to spend more time in quiet. I wanted to spend more time understanding that reaction. And to that point in my life, I had never experienced trauma. I mean, I, mean, I, I was poor when I was little, but I, I never really experienced trauma. I never really experienced like the world ending, like things fell apart in a way that, that I, I can't even describe. I had seen it happen to other people and I'd seen their responses and I had seen, and I've, I've walked alongside other people as they've gone through recovery. Somebody died, a parent died, a child died. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of these kinds of things, but I never experienced it. And I think that it was sort of a latent ability to check in with myself that enabled myself to say, okay, I need help here. I, I'm not going to survive this on my own. And then to note that deepening that latent ability would be huge in the, I would say, pending onslaught. Like there's going to be more stuff that happens. My parents are both still alive. My kids are here. My wife is here. My nephews are alive. You know, I have lots of really close friends. So there's going to be more stuff. And if there's going to be more stuff, I want to be more grounded. And so I, I, I decided to, to actually pursue becoming a mindfulness meditation teacher. And probably in the next two, three years, I will do more of that and less of the finance. I think there's way more value in that than there is in the finance. Uh, lies. And in the Indian way of, of looking at life stages, they do say there's a point in our lives, usually around the age of sometimes between 50 and 60, that we move to being that active 
householder, career-driven person to prioritizing our spiritual presence, spiritual growth, spiritual gifts, and letting them express through us. And so that's a, a powerful life stage to know that what you, you feel so happy that you did what you did then. <laughs> and it's not what you're going to do for this time ahead of you. So uh, it sounds like you're on the cusp of that, that particular life stage. That's it, exactly. I think that's it, exactly. Yeah, so let's now look at that movement into money. And you, of course, made that movement in your career by working for Dean Witter. And I've had several friends who actually did the same thing after college. They worked for Dean Witter as stockbrokers. So I've seen people go through that, that cycle. And then starting to understand, obviously, the value of money, because you mentioned that we are taught that money is this really important thing when we're growing up, and then we have to learn to actually manage it ourselves. And that's something people may feel they need a financial advisor to do. You, of course, recommend learning enough about it to be able to manage your own money. And so many people, though, have this really big divide in their minds between the money part of life, this is me, financial me, this is spiritual me, and there is no, <laughs> no place the two of them intersect. So let's go ahead and explore that interface of money and, and spirituality. How do you see that? I think that those are both part of life. And I would say that, I, I wouldn't say that money and spirituality blend necessarily really, really well, but they're both part of the bigger picture. For me, I think of anything, we often think about money in terms of spending and getting the stuff that we want, or and when we think about it, investing, we're thinking about, you know, lots of decisions and movement and, you know, watching the headlines and what's GDP and what's the Fed going to do. And all you know, there's all this kind of manic stuff around money. But I think at the heart of the financial conversation, done correctly, it's really about love. Money is not about piles of wealth. It's not about money. It's about what money can do for us, what it can do for our children, what it can do for our communities, what it can do for us later in life when we're not working. It's about love. Like the only reason we would save and invest is because of some kind of love. Like we're not going to, the impetus to put money aside for your children's education, it's because you love the best for your kids. The impetus to think about the donor advised funds or the charitable remainder trusts, or the, it's because you love something in your community. You're not, there are people and I feel for them who are just like, I need a, they're in the race. Like I need a bigger bank account. I want to have a larger pool of assets. And that's a lot of Western culture, more, 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 bigger, faster, better. But if you think about it from a place of planning and what's important to me and what are my values, then really it's a question of enough. And once you get to enough, you're there. You don't need to stress about it. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, you do have to watch your mind because your mind will say, oh, you'll, you'll get to the place where you have enough and your mind will go, well, a little bit more. Like, I'd like a little bit more. And you've got to, you got to bring that back. No, no, this is enough, right? What's enough? Oh, that was enough. I don't need this other thing I'm thinking about. But it's it's really about planning, and it's really about what am I planning for? Why is that important? What does that mean to me? What is the purpose of it? And if you put money in that space, I think it works. I think it, it fits better with all the other things. And when I talk about right focus and better outcome and greater well-being, it's interesting that what the academics tell us about our spending and our investing is they, they're very clear about how to have greater well-being in your life. It's to understand what you want to spend on. It's understanding that your authentic living is going to provide more well-being and more happiness and more satisfaction 
than by chasing all the stuff that everyone else thinks, you know, tells you is important or what you see on social media or what your best friend does or what your brother or sister do. You really have to go internal. What's important to me? And you pursue that and let the other stuff go. You don't have to care about the other stuff. And by doing that, wow, you've got plenty of resources to do the stuff that's important. You sort of wake up to this. Yeah, I love that concept of it being enough. And it also parallels the spiritual journey when you reach that point of surrender and acceptance of what is. And it's interesting that your desire for more at that point in the spiritual journey tends to vanish. We find this is really a big shift and somewhat disorienting for people who are goal-oriented. Like, for example, if somebody has had a objective of being the top real estate producer in their region and has, say, won the award, five years in a row, and they've been highly goal-oriented, and now we're teaching them meditation, and they're learning about the short path to enlightenment, and we're having them practice all these spiritual tools, and now they reach a point where everything seems perfect just as it is. I'm number three this month. I'm number 29 this month, and I'm just as content with number 29 as I was with number one, and I am no longer pursuing number one. So it's a very disorienting recalibration. And that happens along the spiritual path. It's one of the milestones of the spiritual path where you start to just accept everything the way it is. That complete peace of mind, regardless of what is going on in you and around you. So I love this idea that we make a certain amount of money and we meet our needs. And then that's enough. And that more <laughs> is not necessarily going to be any better. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. I think this is, a, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And, and this goes back to how the brain works, whether it's a spiritual seeking or whether it's financial seeking, whether it's the, you know, I'll be happy if I get the better job or if I get a better partner or whatever. That's all mental gymnastic. It's all the mind doing stuff because that's what the mind does. And then the question is, do you listen to that? Do you pay attention to that? Do you let that drive you? Or do you take the time and go deep inside and figure out what's important, what do you value, what do you prioritize, and then and then do that. And once you do that, wow, life is just a lot easier. You do have to keep reminding yourself. You got to keep coming back, but life is a lot easier because there are those cultural messages that you need to get bigger, faster, better. So counteracting those is what you have to focus on because if you aren't careful, you can start to absorb those messages. And then act from them. So talk about mindfulness, because you define mindfulness in, in a really interesting way. And I'd love to have you talk about that definition, the way you see it, the way you talk about it in your book, Mindful Investing, and how then mindfulness and the emotional regulation it brings gives us leverage over all those cultural messages and social imperatives we otherwise would be, be swayed by. I don't think I define it in a, an odd way. I think I define it in a, in a pretty traditional way that the uh, mindfulness is just a non-judgmental awareness of the present moment as it's experienced through our senses and our sixth sense, our, our, our feelings and thoughts, right? And I think that that's the same mindfulness that, say, Jack Cornfield would, would probably talk about or, you know, any kind of Western meditation teacher would talk about. The importance of that, and one of the most important words in that is non-judgmental awareness. Being aware of what's happening is, is the first step, right? When you are initiating your meditation, you're starting out a meditation, you focus on your breath, and the point is to note when you're distracted. So you're becoming aware of the distraction. Then the next thing is to, is to say, okay, let that distraction be. We don't have to judge it. It's not a bad distraction. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. And, and realizing that we bring to all of the thoughts, we bring a flavor. And it's usually good or bad. 
You know, that's, am I attracted to this or am I repellent from this? And we bring that flavor to every, every, if it doesn't have one of those two flavors, it's usually, I don't really know what's happening. Like it's, it's the other issue is like, I'm not really aware of what's going on underneath that. So when you apply that concept to something like your spending or your investing, once you've done the work and you've determined what's important and you know what you value and you, you, you're on that path, when you're distracted from that path, it's easy to come back to that. When you write, when you, and I always, I refer to in meditation, we focus on our breath as, as one of our potential meditation anchors. I'm learning to actually focus on lots of different things because I'm trying to teach it. And some people don't have access to their breaths, have to have access to something else. So that's wonderful. But in finance, your plan is like your breath. You actually write out, this is the stuff that I'm supposed to do to support my long-term personal finances. And when I'm distracted, there's a boat I want to buy, there's a market collapse, you know, whatever it is out there that might distract me from this, I return to my plan. What does my plan tell me that I should be doing? Because in the heat of the moment, we're going to fly off the handle and do something wrong. The plan is our anchor. Just like in meditation, our breath is our anchor. Interesting that you see your plan as what you come back to when you're, say, watching financial show and there's some great new investment touted or you get an email about some <laughs> high return strategy yeah having that plan is 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 powerful because it's a it's a benchmark it's a yardstick you can use to, to bring you back there and you mentioned too in the book about our are those emotional impulses we have and how they really i know there are studies showing that for example people who are highly emotional tend to make poor investors because they are swayed by those things. Go and talk about these, the origin of these emotions, where they came from, how mindfulness can help us with them, and that, how that helps with investment. There's a story I love to tell that has everything to do with where does this catastrophism or attraction to catastrophism come from? And you can imagine a buddy and myself 5,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, 500,000 years ago on an African savanna. We are both walking and we're just chatting about our days and stuff. And there's a snap in the bushes. I, boom, I'm out of here. I run immediately. I don't think about it. I'm just out of here. My buddy, he's thoughtful. He's much smarter than I am. He goes, huh, I wonder what that sound is, right? He becomes lunch. He becomes lunch. I escape. The thing that Darwin or, or natural selection has selected for is our hyper awareness of risk. Now I'm running away. My buddy just got eaten by a lion. I'm running away. I meet a woman running towards me and she's, oh, we're both breathing hard. We come up, we meet each other. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing this. It's great. And she goes, yeah, I just back there with a friend of mine and we were walking and I heard a snap in the bushes. I didn't think about it. And I ran. And so our children are the result of the two most hyper aware, most risk averse, most terrified people that were on the Savannah that day. Right. And so then we do that over thousands of years and repeat, 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 repeat. And the people we are today are just, you know, we are physiologically designed to see the thing to be afraid of and to run away from it. In the Buddhist framework, it's to, you know, to be repelled by this thing. Right. And so when we're mindful, we can move out of that amygdala response, that lizard brain response and be more thoughtful. And when you think about Matthew Ricard, who was, there's a photo of Matthew Ricard, who's a, who's a Buddhist monk, who has all of the electrodes around his head and he's meditating. And he has this brain waves that are just non-reactive. Sure, he has thoughts, but it's very small. If you hook me to the same stuff, it's like, you know, it's crazy. It's because he has developed a brain that doesn't react the same way my brain reacts. That's why, it, that's the power of the practice. It actually strengthens our decision-making and reduces the amygdala response. And it's in 
incredible when you look at the research on this. So in spending and investing, we have a lot of emotional triggers. And if we can reduce the strength of the emotional trigger through meditation, you'll be better at spending more authentically. You'll be less afraid when markets do what markets do. And that's what just markets are going to do. They're going to do it. We're not going to change that. That's never going to change. So how do we deal with what is? Well, we become more mindful. So mindfulness gives us leverage over those impulsive emotions. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because the old saying about investing is that it's driven by two emotions, fear and greed. Either we're greedy or fearful. And that's why we do most of what we do. When we're mindful, we approach our whole financial life very, very differently from the way we otherwise would. So this is a huge leverage point over wealth and wealth building and and investing. And so it's it's interesting that learning to moderate those emotions, which originally was developed by Tibetans and by Buddhists and by monks and by the Desert Fathers and Christianity and all these great mystics that they develop emotion regulation. And so they had no context of money for doing that. It wasn't like they were developing emotion regulation to, to invest in the stock market of Babylon or ancient Tibet because there was no such thing that they were using that emotion regulation. They were developing that emotion regulation. And we now, as we become mindful, as we develop that ability to tame the amygdala and tame all of those impulses, those physiological biases that can lead us into fear and greed, are able then to apply this the same skill set that was originally developed just to achieve higher spiritual states, higher consciousness now to our our money and our, our investing byproduct of spirituality. It makes perfect sense. I mean, you can apply it to anything. Like you can apply the concept of mindfulness. And you probably know this in, in the history of Buddhism. When Buddhism moves from culture to culture, it kind of adopts or adapts to the culture it moves into. When Buddhism moved from India to Tibet or India to China, it kind of adapted to the local culture. So you see in Tibet, you see some of the indigenous Bun religion sort of leaks into the Buddhism of Tibet. And when you go to Japan, you see some of the indigenous Shinto and other religions kind of leak into the Buddhism of Japan. And that's all great. In the West, we've actually made it very secular. Like, how do we apply mindfulness? And like all of the Western mindfulness teachers aren't necessarily Buddhist teachers. They're mindfulness teachers. They're talking about the brain chemistry is affected and how it, it can improve your diet and exercise. It can stop, help you stop smoking. It can improve your relationship with your children. It can, it can make you a better employee and make you be a, a better boss. It can, it can help you with your money. It can help you with pretty much every element of your life. So it's, I'm just sort of chronicling the benefit in your money. But there's tons of people talking about the benefits in all areas of your life. Absolutely. It probably perpetuates, propagates through into your family life, your degree of reactivity to people around you, uh, the way you drive, the way you move through the world, and whether you get impatient with other people, whether you can work effectively in a team. There are all kinds of other ways in which mindfulness is going to benefit you. One of the things I'm curious about is what you think of the whole concept of filtering your investments to so say you have money and you're going to invest in stocks or in some other form of investment there and there's a whole movement over the last 20 or 30 years towards socially conscious investments mm -hmm. environmentally sound investments um <clears throat> what's your take on that whole movement of society generally and fund managers especially to those types of investments so so first of all in the back of the book there are lists of potential portfolio pieces, like things that people can invest in, actual ticker symbols and things. And I include social responsible ESG tools in that list. I actually think that there's 
it doesn't matter. It matters for the world if people choose to be more conscious with their investing. But in terms of the process of investing, the emotional reaction to your investments, it doesn't matter how you're invested. You're going to have, however you build your portfolios, however you decide to build up your trading system, you're going to have emotional responses. And if you are going to be a trader, you have to have a much tighter grip on your emotional responses to do that. But you're setting, you're signing up to make a lot more decisions than what I would recommend a normal person to do. If you're following the advice in the book and you're literally buying a basket of global equities with a single holding rather than, you know, 27 or 15 or 12 different holdings, then you don't need to make as many decisions. You don't need to make as many choices. And so your reactions will be lessened. So you'll make fewer mistakes. Now you can choose from those categories, from those lists, you can say, I'm going to choose one that is just going to invest in everything. You can choose one that says, I'm going to invest in everything, but I'm going to have a focus on sustainability. And that's fine. I, I don't think you're going to, I don't think that anyone can make a really good argument that says, I'm going to have better returns or worse returns because no one can see the future. Like you can't make that argument for any portfolio, much less one that's responsible versus one that's not. I don't know if small cap is going to outperform large cap. I don't know if international is going to outperform domestic. I don't know if growth is going to outperform value. I don't know if oil is going to outperform not oil. No one can predict that. That's impossible. Those are facts about the future that don't exist. So you're left with your values. If it's important you to invest that way, just invest that way. Over, over 20, 30, 40 years, it's not going to make a difference. It'll, it'll move the needle a little bit either way. You won't be able to predict which way, but you're investing with your values. If that's going to help you stay invested, fantastic. You do that. I wouldn't, I don't think it's going to change your emotional response though. The thing that we're working on with mindful investing is the emotional response. It's the excitement at the new shiny thing and the terror at whatever the catastrophe of the day is. <laughs> and there's plenty of that reporting to go around. So <laughs> when I read the financial news, uh, either the excitement or the terror is... Uh... <laughs> I've, I've, I've actually spent the last four weeks in our newsletter, which, you know, by the way, everyone should subscribe to the newsletter. But I've spent the last four weeks chronicling the gathering darkness, you know, talking about what are those things out there that everyone's talking about right now that we should be terrified of. And there are many, but I've actually... I think last week I wrote about what was happening in 1970. And no one remembers, no one remembers the last period of the gathering darkness, much less a period that was 50 years ago. But we have to, we have to realize that our brains intentionally eject bad memories. Like we don't remember the negative stuff long term because we couldn't, we couldn't go about our day if we did. We automatically, our, our brains slowly filter out a lot of the negativity. But we don't, we go through, we go from period of uncertainty to period of uncertainty to period of uncertainty to period of uncertainty. And we just repeat that over time. And so if we have an adult memory and we can think about, wow, in 1970, this, this, it, 1970 was awful. It was horrific. Like there was, you, you might remember Kent State, like the National Guard, children themselves fired upon children at Kent State, killed students because of political division, right? Because of like, that was nuts. And we look at today and go, oh, it's so bad today, but it's because we forgot. Um, at the same, in 1970, another thing that happened was we went off the gold standard. It's kind of like going off gravity. It's like deciding that we're going to change the entire structure of how the world operates financially. And no one knew what was going to happen next, but we did it. I mean, that, you know, so is that, is today worse than that? I don't, I don't know. It's, there's like reasons to be horrified. There's reasons to be horrified today. Guess what else happened in 1970? This is really important. I hope everyone understands this. A guy named, uh, Gordon Moore founded Intel 
started which started the technological revolution. No one knew what that was going to become. But in the day, everyone was focused on Kent State, gold standard, the end of a 18-month bear market. That's what people were focused on because that's what people focus on. But the there's wonder always happening at the same time, but we don't see it. There's terror happening and we see all of it. And it gets written about and it's podcasts and radios and, and it just overwhelms us. So having an adult memory, remembering that stuff happens all the time, recognizing that while stuff is always happening, there's good stuff that's also happening under the surface. And being mindful of that and really understanding that is really important. It's really important. I was reading a recent Gallup poll where they looked at global happiness and global well-being, global thriving. And it is so striking, Jonathan, that so here are people being polled. They live in exactly the same world. They're all on planet Earth. They're all here at the same time. They're all reading the same news and being exposed to the same kinds of informational inputs. And what that Gallup poll, most recent ones are showing is that some people are absolutely thriving. About 20% of people in the world are, are thriving. Now, again, there are 20 times the number of meditators today that there were in 1980. In the last 40 plus years, the, the number of meditators in countries that track these things, OECD countries, has gone up 20-fold. Not 20%, 20-fold. There are 20 meditators, maybe one meditator in, in 1980. And so all of these people who are taking care of their stress, who are taking care of their diet, their life, their, their lifestyle, their mental health, their physical health, they are thriving as never before, that top 20%. The bottom 20% are miserable. Uh, one of the things that Gallup poll found that in, in certain countries, like in India, that over 20% of adults asked to rate their lives on a scale of 0 through 10, with 0 being the worst possible life I could, I could have, 10 being the best possible life, 20% of, of, of Indian adults rated themselves as 0. In other words, my life can get no worse. So a big chunk of people globally is that they perceive themselves in the same world as these people are thriving in, perceive themselves to be at 0 or 1 or 2. So it's it's astonishing the kind of leverage that consciousness has over our well-being that we, uh, of course, material material support is part of it. But even in developed countries where people are relatively affluent, we still find this big divide between that top group who are just thriving and that bottom group who are, are living in despair. And it's just striking to um, see this disparity that we have not as big a disparity as ever, ever, ever had before in these polls as, as far back as we can, we can read human mood and national moods. So it really is what you pay attention to. Are you going to focus on all of those disasters and think that the most recent disasters are the, 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 the big, the big new threat? Or will you put it in perspective by, say, looking at 1970, realizing that that's just one of the biases of the brain as to what, as to, um, what's happened most recently. So you mentioned the recency bias, which is one of the biases that, that, that shapes our perception. We tend to put more stuff in more store by things that happened recently over things that happened in 1970 or, or before. What are some of the other biases that can sabotage our investing? Oh, I think the bit, well, there's, there's, there's like three or four that are really big. Uh, one of the biggest ones is confirmation bias, right? It's, it's the idea that our brain automatically filters things out that we disagree with. Like we'll, we'll receive information and we'll look at that information. And if that information agrees with our previously held beliefs, we'll go, okay, we'll let that information in. Um, and this is our, this is not our thoughtful brain. This is our amygdala. This is our lizard brain saying, oh, I see this information. Do I let it in? The flip side of that is I see some information 
that actually causes me to question my beliefs. And then what ends up happening is my brain goes, no, 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 no. We're going to, we're going to demote the value of that in our, in our reception of that information. And so confirmation bias ends up being something that I think, especially in the West, it creates this huge division. I think confirmation bias is one of the reasons we are so politically polarized. It's one of the reasons we see a lot of, it's not, it doesn't create the inequality, but it enhances the disgust around the inequality, right? It confirms everyone's bias about what that inequality means. And that I think is, is problematic. So it, so confirmation bias is huge. There's another one that I'm trying to think of the actual word for it, but uh, I, I'll, I'll tell a story about it because I can't think of the word. You'll, you'll probably go, oh yeah, that's this. Uh, there's something like when polled, like 85 or 90% of people think that they're, they're better than average drivers. Right. So, uh-huh. what, is, what is that bias? Uh-huh. What is that bias? But I've read about that same phenomenon that people's self-perception and where they rank themselves, if they're asked to rank themselves as well on their IQ, they right. tend to right. place themselves in the upper percentiles. <laughs> and it, I think th- there's a related bias that's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Most like the less you know, the less you know, the more intensely you hold your belief. The less actual knowledge you have about a topic, if you have an opinion on that topic, the more tightly you hold that opinion. Whereas if you know a lot more, if you're very wise and intelligent, you know a lot, you actually hold your opinions a little bit more loosely, which is probably a better way to hold your opinions. <laughs> Yeah. And of course, you have, you need that curiosity, that open mindedness and that ability to explore when you're investing rather than getting all invested in your own opinions. That's right. For sure. Yeah. And so how do these play out in the kinds of ways you, you recommend we invest? What you're recommending is that we, we, we use indexes. We don't give ourselves the, the, all the cognitive work of figuring out a whole bunch of individual investments that, uh, there are indexes that, that over time you're saying are gonna require a lot less decision making and open up more space in our lives. What, what are you, what are some of the other approaches you recommend? So there's two core, really important messages that I'm trying to get across. The first is, all quality important investing is about owning. And so there's two, there's two investments. There's really all investments fall into two categories. You know, either you own a thing or you lend to a thing, right? So there's, there's, there's equity ownership. There's bonds, fixed income lending, right? Those two things. Every investment is some function of those two things. Real estate, you either own or you lend. You know, you either own Bitcoin or you cannot own Bitcoin. You can't really lend Bitcoin at this point. But equities versus lending. And so I personally favor ownership 99% of the time. So for me, I'm okay with a 50% decline in my portfolio. I'm fine with that. I know it recovers. I'm not worried about it. For someone that's not there, that doesn't have that same faith and belief in the system, they probably don't want to have 100% equities. They, they need to have some kind of a less, lesser percentage in equities. So the, the first hurdle to get over is the importance of owning equities, of being an owner. Yes, it increases volatility. Yes, it increases the potential short-term decline of a portfolio. For sure, it does that. But when you look over long periods of time, it actually does the thing that fixed income does not do. And that means it, it overcomes inflation. The battle that we're really fighting when we're investing is not with volatility. It's with inflation. It's with the constant decline in the value of our currency units. $10 bill today buys $10 worth of goods. 20 years from now, it buys $3 worth of goods. So how do I protect myself from that decline? Equities do it. 
the dividends on equities increase at two to three times the rate of inflation. There isn't another tool that does that. Bonds don't do it. Cash doesn't do it. CDs don't do it. They feel a lot safer in the short run. They aren't safer in the long run. History being what it is, the facts tell us that equities are a better long-term investment. So emphasize that. So that's first thing, equities over fixed income. Second thing, keep it ultra, ultra simple. There is a graphic in the back among the appendices in the book. And on the very left side, I start with the global equity portfolio. And then we move one column to the right and we separate the global equity portfolio. This is everything. Large companies, small companies, medium-sized companies, growth companies, value companies, companies from China, companies from India, companies from Europe, companies from the United States in a single holding. Move one column to the right, we separate that, it, separate that into international, emerging, and US. So now you have three holdings that do the same thing. You move one column more to the right, you've got international growth and value, domestic growth and value, emerging growth and value. You have six holdings that are exact same thing. So that you can move to the fourth column, you can move to the fifth column where you're buying individual equities, or you can stay over on the left column and just buy one thing that balances it for you, rebalances it for you, takes care of that decision for you. You don't have to think about that. The further to the left you go, the better off, you, the more well-being you're going to have. The problem that people immediately ask, the question people immediately, well, Jonathan, won't my returns be less? We can't know that. We can't know what we should overweight next. Nobody has any facts about the future. A lot of people think that maybe, you know, Microsoft is going to be a better holding than Apple. A lot of people will say Bitcoin is where you should buy, not gold. Maybe you should buy international, not domestic. But the research tells us the longer you make that decision, the longer you attempt to decide this versus that, this versus that, this versus that, the more years you spend doing that, the lower the probability you're successful. So the more time you spend deciding this versus that, the higher the probability you underperform the person that just stayed in the left-hand column. The recommendation is focus on equities and then just buy a global all equity, all cap, growth value portfolio. Don't separate it out. Just keep it really simple. And by doing that, you're going to end up with very similar returns, maybe a little bit ahead, maybe a little bit behind. That doesn't matter at all in the big picture. You're, you're going to keep your life simple. Because you keep your life simple, you're going to have more time. You're going to be able to spend that time in places that matter to you. And you're going to have, the, you're going to have very similar outcomes. So more time for life, very similar outcomes. It's a better way to do it in my, in my book. Powerful. And then the mind share you save, you can use for things that really count. And that might be family. It might be spiritual practice, it might be self-development, it might be hobbies, it might be community, it might be volunteering. But I think of everything in terms of mindshare and attention. Like yep. if I put mindshare on this, that means I don't have mindshare for that. And what is it you most want to spend your capital of consciousness on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your your mental resources. I mean, that is yeah. We used to I mean, we used to talk about how time is the only non-renewable resource. It's not just time. It's your capacity to be aware and pay attention is limited. Like we only have so much oomph up there and we should spend it, to, it the best ways we can to better our lives. Well-being, 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 not more, 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 more. What a beautiful message. And I'm so grateful that you are sharing this today, that you've shared this with our community, that you're inspiring us, that you're giving us practical tools 
and ways to implement these ideas. The work you're doing is so important, both on the financial and the spiritual level. I'm so grateful to you for what the gifts of awareness, of perspective, of practice you've given us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dawson. I much appreciate being here. Uh, what a joy. And again, just go and apply these things in your life. They can make uh, an enormous difference. So, so before we get back together again, we are going to go and make our notes, look at them, implement the things we, we know we can do, and know that as we practice these things, as we apply them in our lives, they can make all the difference. Thanks again, and I will see you soon. 